0: feel a little bit like madonna at a concert with this gear on but that's that's okay um so godwin's law says that in a political discussion eventually hitler or the nazis will come up and that happened really quickly today didn't it (laughs) just now it seems to happen also with bitcoin in any conversation bitcoin comes up we could maybe call this satoshi's law uh so congratulations to hans for a having the first official PFS talk on a Bitcoin-related topic. Um, This is my second talk on Bitcoin, and the first was in 2013 in Atlanta at the Cryptocurrency Conference on legal tender law. I'm not really an expert on Bitcoin. There's lots of people in the room that are far more experts than I am on the technology and even the economics and the finance of Bitcoin. Um, And so today I'm talking about property rights issues – Uh, related to this idea so I was gonna start this talk by saying raise your hand if you own Bitcoin but I decided against that because I don't want to expose anyone to any prying eyes and uh, it's a trick question because I would say the talk is titled nobody owns Bitcoin so you're wrong you don't own Bitcoin (laughs) but I'm not that mean today so I won't do that Um, so in a way I'll go ahead and not hide the ball the answer is nobody owns Bitcoin it can't be owned The interesting question is why one short answer is it's very simple people only own their own resources and therefore no one owns information it's very simple that's the answer end of the talk i mean if you understand the case against intellectual property this should be obvious right except even the case against intellectual property is not obvious to everyone Um, it takes a while to grasp it it's very difficult for some people although once you grasp it it seems very simple Hans, Professor Hoppe made the same, uh, a similar argument in his talk in 2016 here, where he elaborated on his argumentation ethics, and he pointed out that once he figured it out, he wondered why no one had thought of it, um, but once you figure it out, it is deceptively simple, but it's path-breaking nonetheless, and Hans pointed out something similar uh, about Mises' argument against uh, the the possibility of economic calculation under socialism. The argument seems very simple once you hear it, but it took Mises to discover it. Um, So what's really the fuss about? Why would we even argue about this? And the reason is because in Bitcoin circles and outside Bitcoin, people talk about it in certain ways. They say that I own certain Bitcoins. They talk about the possibility of Bitcoin being stolen or Bitcoin theft. Um, And sometimes I say, well, I thought about it and technically you don't own your Bitcoin uh, and you can't really steal Bitcoin and this makes some bitcoiners angry. it's you know sort of like praising uh, Hillary Clinton in front of a bunch of libertarians or something. Um, they think I'm criticizing Bitcoin and you can't criticize Bitcoin among bitcoiners because nothing. Uh, nothing sets them back. If you point out the government might confiscate it, it's not a problem. I mean, Bitcoiners are eternally optimistic, right? Um, Anyway, it's not a criticism, it's just a legal analysis. It's not ownable. Lots of things aren't ownable in life. Um, Love, knowledge, relationships, and that's not a criticism of those things existing or being valuable in life or playing a role in our life. So why does it matter whether we own Bitcoin and how to describe this phenomenon? Well, for one thing, the state thinks it matters. Various states around the world are noticing this phenomenon, and they're coming up with different tax rules, sometimes classifying it as property, sometimes in other ways, basically to steal it. So I kind of sometimes caution Bitcoiners, quit trying to argue that it's like gold or a commodity or ownable because you might get what you wish for and you might not like the results. Let's, uh, let's maybe keep the waters a little muddy for the state. Um, but why would people disagree about this issue? Why would there be confusion? One reason is because the state over the centuries, especially in recent times, has gradually intruded into law uh, with, with democratic lawmaking, as Professor Hoppe calls it, which is legislation, the state. Uh, and the other is just conceptual confusion because law is developing over the centuries and not everyone's an expert and experts sometimes disagree. Um, and this derives in large part from imprecision in language and the overuse or the misuse of analogies and metaphors. Now, many Austrian thinkers have and other thinkers have cautioned against the misuse or overuse of metaphors. Metaphors are really impossible to avoid. The imprecision of language is impossible to avoid, but we have to be cautious of it. Um Bon-Bawerk in 1881 himself said it's basically impossible to avoid the use of metaphors. If we could, it would be an absurd undertaking to banish from the language of economic theory every manner of speaking that is not literally correct. We couldn't say the 100th part of what we have to say if we refuse to take recourse to a metaphor. But one requirement is essential that economic theory avoid the error of confusing a practical habit, which we indulge in for the sake of expediency with scientific truth. So he's saying we we have to use metaphors, but we have to be careful. Many other thinkers, and ironically, Roderick Long, a libertarian philosopher, pointed out that ironically, in his memoirs, Mises accused von himself in their dispute over Kantian effects um, of being led astray by the idea of friction and other metaphors borrowed from the physical sciences. So even von fell prey to this. And Professor uh, Rothbard and Guido Hilsman, they've also pointed out the dangers of, of overuse of metaphors in economic and political reasoning uh, a famous american judge later a justice on the supreme court cardozo in 1926 said metaphors in law are to be narrowly watched for they start out as devices to liberate thought but they often end up enslaving it and there's other imprecisions in language we have to be wary of like uh, as says is uh, uh, robert lefebvre a famous uh, classical li- libertarian pointed out when we use possessives in language like my wife It doesn't mean I own my wife. It's just a possessive, but people, uh, well, in a a libertarian society anyway. Um, So people use this idea, my labor, it's my labor, I own my labor, therefore intellectual property. So you see how these ideas lead to confusion. Uh, Another example would be, uh, speaking of labor, David Hume himself criticized um, John Locke's overly metaphorical, or as uh, Hume called it, figurative uh, idea that labor is joined to or mixed with objects, and which was part of his argument for homesteading. And even Israel Kirchner, the Austrian economist, uh, approvingly cites a, a, a scholar, J.P. Day, um, who says that laboring is an activity, and although activities can be engaged in or performed or done, they can't be owned. So we often say, it's my labor, I own it, but... Th- Technically speaking, you can't own labor. Um, So with this in mind, what what would it mean to own a Bitcoin? Why do people say that? So there's just two parts to this proposition. I own Bitcoin, ownership and Bitcoin. So very quickly, as I said, I'm not a technical expert. And uh, Hans cautioned me not to uh, overwhelm anyone with too much uh, technical knowledge about Bitcoin. I'm not an expert, but I do have a t-shirt, you know, that's, which I do own. It's a real thing. (laughs) So, Bitcoin is basically a distributed ledger that tracks uh, private, public key, cryptographic pairs with entries in this ledger, which correspond to one of up to 21 million Bitcoins. And there will only be 21 million ever created in the Bitcoin system in about 120 years, I think. Uh, We're at about 18 now, so it's a very slow growth. Um... It's, it's, uh, this slide what we're looking at now is being displayed from a file which is on this computer. It's on one memory device. Bitcoin is distributed, meaning there are about 10,000 or more copies of this ledger on different people's computers called nodes around the world. And it's updated every 10 minutes as new Bitcoins are created and transferred. So basically it's a ledger, which is just information. So that's what's important to know. That Bitcoin is just... An entry of Bitcoin is an entry on this big ledger, which is stored on many people's computers around the world. So that's all the technical detail. Now, as to ownership, um, I was a little surprised in the last few years to, to realize that Mises himself had some extremely perceptive comments about this topic. Um, uh, even be, even better in his 1922 book, Socialism, where he basically distinguished between two types of ownership. Um, In 1922, in socialism, he called it uh, sociological ownership. In human action, he called it catalactic. Basically, he means practical ownership. So he means the ability to use a resource, which is what humans do. And he called that catalactic ownership. Um, I've got a long quote here, but I won't won't read through the whole thing. as compared to juristic or legal ownership, which is what most people mean by the word ownership or property rights. And he links this. Ownership and property rights are what the laws protect. So one is the right of ownership or property rights, and the other is the ability to use a resource, which he, he calls catalactic ownership. Now... Um, and in, in, in socialism, he even, he even said this. Th- I will read this part. Um, the sociological or economic and juristic concepts of ownership are different, and this is natural. And he says one can only be surprised that the fact is still sometimes overlooked. Uh, owner, uh, ownership from the economic point of view is the having of goods, right, which is part of human action. This can be called natural or original ownership, and it's a purely physical relationship. Of man to goods. Um, But the legal concept is that it says this is what rights people should have. So there's a distinction between description and prescription, between um, the way things are and the way things should be. So Mises clearly recognizes this. And this, of course, follows from his, his view of human action, which was praxeology, the logic of human action, which can be summarized as saying that human action is. Guided by knowledge. Now, this point is often not emphasized in Austrian writing. The it's it's implicitly recognized. Some scholars mention it from time to time, uh, but usually the focus is on the use of means. But of course, all human action is guided by knowledge. Right. So, human actors, guided by knowledge about the way the world works, they employ scarce means to make changes in the world to achieve their ends. This is what human action is. So, the two ingredients of human action are the possession and ability to consult knowledge that guides your actions and the ability to control resources uh, to change the way things happen in the world. These are scarce means, and that is what Mises would call catalytic ownership. Um, now, in my view and in the view of probably mainstream scholars, it's better to use the word just possession or power or control instead of saying catalytic ownership and having to distinguish it every time. Because this leads to confusion. And this is exactly part of the reason why Bitcoiners would would say, uh, I own Bitcoin. What they really mean is I can control it and it's virtually impossible for someone else to steal it from me because of the cryptographic system that's set up. It's almost impossible for a Bitcoin to be taken without your consent. Um, And by that, they mean ownership. They're thinking practically. But we should just say possession or control. Um, Now, notice that Mises links ownership and property rights, and that's because property rights apply only in society, right, when we have laws. But possession or use of resources would apply to any human actor even outside of society. Even Crusoe alone on his island has to employ scarce resources. But he can't own these resources in the legal sense because there's no legal system and there's no other people to threaten his use of property. Now, what happens is just as ownership is used to mean practical control – or possession when it should be restricted to legal ownership uh, the word property has come to be used widely in society to refer to the resource that is owned and this also leads to confusion so for someone would say uh, that bicycle is my property or this phone is my property um, but even mainstream legal scholars when they're thinking precisely and carefully they recognize that technically speaking the word property ought to be restricted to the right So you have a property right in a resource. You have an ownership right in the resource. The owner of the resource has the property right in the resource. To call the resource itself property uh, can lead to confusion because then the question starts uh, uh, arising – well, we'll get to this in a second. But the question is, is this property or idea's property or Bitcoin's property, which is never the question, okay? So – If we clean up our terminology and our concepts, it helps us think more clearly about all this and avoid some equivocation, unintentional or intentional mistakes. So better term, you would say, to be clear, you would say humans need to possess, not catalectically own. They need to possess and use scarce resources. In society, we have laws, the juristic laws, that protect the property rights in these resources. That means they're owners of these resources. Okay, so you possess a resource that you need to employ as part of human action, but in society you might have an ownership or a property right, and you're the owner. Okay, so it's better to do this than to call an object property itself. Okay. Now, how are these property rights determined substantively? In a free society, in a private law society, and roughly in the private law systems of the Roman law and the common law, except for state intrusions, the rules were very simple. And This is what, how you can state the essence of the libertarian rules of how property rights would be developed. Number one, self-ownership in the case of your body, which is also a misleading metaphor. It's better to say body ownership because the self is a nebulous term. But basically, if there's a dispute over who owns someone's body, the libertarian default answer is the person himself owns it. Very simple. Can't justify these rules right now. Professor Hoppe has already done this. Um, but that's the rule. And then in the case of every other resource in the world, these are the scarce means of action, That these are things that were previously unowned. This is what distinguishes all other resources from people's bodies. People's bodies were not previously unowned and therefore are not technically homesteaded, in, in my view. That's why the rule is separate. It's just there's direct ownership of your body because of your... Um, special connection to it. But in the case of external resources, there are three rules. One is original appropriation, sometimes called homesteading, which means the first user has a better claim than other people. And then there's contractual transfer, which means the owner of that resource consensually transfers it to someone else by a sale or a gift or a bequest and an inheritance. And then you could think of a third rule, rectification or restitution. If you commit a tort against someone, you might owe them some recompense by giving them some of your money or your property to make them whole. But other than these three or four simple rules, there are no other rules that you need to consult to determine the owner of any resource when there's a dispute. Now, knowledge itself can't be owned because knowledge is not a scarce resource that's part of human action but so i went through i emphasized knowledge is what guides human action and knowledge or information um does is not an independently existing thing it's always a patterning of a thing so this piece of paper you could say it has information on it but the information couldn't exist without being on the paper it can't just be free floating it's always the impatterning of a thing, and that thing is always a scarce resource that someone can can own. So information is always just a characteristic or a feature of a thing that is already owned by someone. Okay, So basically media, things that information can be stored on, um, are themselves physical scarce resources which already have an owner according to the private law rules that I've already discussed. You have to realize then, according to this scheme, a person owns a resource, but you don't own its characteristics or features. So there's a tendency for people to double count. If I write a book, people think I own the book, but it's not just the, the pieces of paper that I printed it on or the notebook that I wrote it in the first time or the computer hard drive that I stored it on when I typed it, it's also the pattern of it. But the pattern can't be separated from the underlying medium because it has to be stored on something. So if you if you say, I own this pattern of information and I own the paper, it's double counting. And what that leads to is the idea that you own a universal. You own a feature of your property, which means you own everyone else's resource that has a similar feature. So for example, if I own a red bicycle um, and you say, because I own a red bicycle, I own its color or its its age or its weight, then... You would own every other object in the world or every the bicycle that's red or that has the same age. Obviously that's absurd. That would in turn property on its head and would give people ownership over other people's resources. So the, the characteristics of an object define what it is, but the ownership rights are in the object uh, itself. Now, I've got enough time for an hour and a half of talk so i have some extra slides here i'm going to put this on my website by the way and by the way i did this powerpoint because i'm always reluctant to do powerpoints because it's a little bit like an amway salesman dorky but um renata lovely renata told me that half of our audience here is not native english speakers and sometimes even us southerners speak a little bit fast and she said it would help to have a handout so i can see the word you're saying and maybe follow a little bit more so um, I did the PowerPoint for Renata, and this will be on my website when I post this. Um, so there's some extra slides here, which I'm going to skip because of time. So as I mentioned earlier, what's the real question when there's a dispute or a debate about what the law should be? Um, the real question is not, is this property, is X property, which is the way a lot of people uh, put it. They'll say, are ideas property? Like if you argue about intellectual property, they'll say, well, the dispute is whether ideas are property. And you're saying ideas aren't property, but I think they are property because it took innovation and labor to create them, and I created it, and I... You know. So they think the dispute is, are ideas property? And then the question is, who's the owner? Once you can see that it's property, then the question is, who's the owner? Some libertarians like Tibor McCann and others say, well, if, if, if I wrote a poem, the poem is a thing that exists, and I created it, and it's ownable... Uh, the, the only person that could own it would be me, the creator. That's the natural answer. So they they sort of skip the first question about whether it's an ownable type of thing in the first place, and they do that because they ask, "Are ideas property? Is this bicycle property?" That's not the question. The question would be, "Whose bicycle is it?" Or Bitcoin's property is not the right question. So the question's always in a context when there's two or more people that have a dispute or a contest over a thing. That's the type of thing that you can have a dispute over, which is always a scarce means of action, a scarce resource, a physical material thing that can causally interfere with the world that you use to achieve your ends. When there's a dispute about that, then the question is, okay, there's a dispute. Who's the owner? You answer the question by consulting the private property rules. There's only four, they're very simple. Um, now, I, t- I coined a term, my, my, my view is when, any, when anyone coins a term, they're in danger of being a crank um if you're really a genius you might can coin two or three Mises had catalectics and praxeology Hayek had a bunch that are a little bit too many Eric Vogelin had I mean some of these guys go crazy but then real cranks have a bunch of terms you can't even understand their stuff so I'm gonna just have one which is conflictable because the word scarcity another slide I probably won't get to but scarcity has another' is another word with dual meanings and it, it confuses people because by scarcity in essence, what we mean is what Mises meant when he referred to scarce means of action, right um, The things that we have to use in the world because we don't live in a world of superabundance. So scarcity for us means the opposite of superabundance. Superabundance is this um, unimaginable state of the Garden of Eden where we have no wants, no dissatisfaction we would not even act so it's almost um, an unrealistic uh, hypothetical but superabundant scarcity to us basically means it means what economists call rivalry or I would say things over which there can be conflict so conflictability Um, most people confuse that with more ordinary meaning of scarcity which means lack of abundance which just means not enough supply which the laws of supply and demand regulate Um, now Again, this conflict arises over the use of a resource. That's a scarce resource, a physical material thing, but never over its characteristics, never over its color or over its weight or its age. Um, And this is analogous to one of Professor Hoppe's insights where he's pointed out that property rights are always in the physical integrity of a resource, not in their value. You can't have a a property right in a value. Um, And for similar reasons, um, characteristics of owned resources are not independently owned which is why information can't be owned okay so here's my super abundant stuff which I'll I'll skip all right so to sum up now so by now the, the Bitcoin case in, in my view should be clear bitcoins are just entries in a ledger okay the ledger is just information stored on 10,000 private computers around the world a bunch of different hard drives and they're all owned by different people or companies So if I owned a Bitcoin, that would mean I own the pattern of information that's stored on other people's computers. That would mean I have a property right in their computers. But I don't have a property right in their computers. They own their computers. Um, And this is analogous to Rothbard's own proto-anti-IP argument where he argued against defamation law or reputation rights because he pointed out you can't have a right to your reputation because the reputation is just what other people think about you. And that's just information in their brains, and if you own your reputation, you own their brains, which is what we would normally call slavery. Um, So we tend to be against that. Now, there's one ancillary point maybe I could answer in the Q&A or after. Um, It's it's important to note also that the Bitcoin system is – because it's pseudonymous – um, and the way it's designed, there are no terms of service. So you can't make the argument that if I, st- if I steal your Bitcoin, and by the way, the only way to steal a Bitcoin would be either to trespass into someone's computer or their home and like literally violate their property rights uh, to get their private key, which is already a crime, so you don't need to make a double crime, or to guess it, and it's impossible to guess it. But if you did happen to guess it, this is the argument, that if you guess someone's private key and you transfer their Bitcoins to your account using their, the private key that you luckily guessed, that that would be theft because they own the Bitcoins. And this is basically the argument, my argument, that no, that wouldn't be theft because that's actually permitted by the rules of the Bitcoin system. Okay. So in conclusion, while Bitcoin may not be legally ownable in a free society, it can still be useful. Uh, just like knowledge can't be owned, it's still useful. Um, Nobody owns bitcoins, but you can still use them. Thank you.